This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again we come to the time in your service of the Word. We come to you looking for truth and light. We come to your word looking for you. Father, you have told us that you can be found in your word. And Lord, we pray for your illumination, that you would open up your word to us, that we can, can see you and see your truth and your grace. And ultimately, Lord, that you would transform our hearts into, into better worshipers and better glorifiers of you. Father, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We are going to be in Acts chapter 21 this morning. If you want to start heading there, it's a chapter that I've been looking forward to for a while. Perhaps you've heard the story of a man named Jack Trice. He's the namesake of Iowa State University's stadium. He's uh, played football for Iowa State in the 1920s, but here's the thing. He, he wasn't an All-American. He wasn't a Hall of Famer. He wasn't a Heisman Trophy winner. In fact, he only played in two games, and the first game he didn't even start. So why'd they name a whole stadium after him? Well, in 1923, Jack was a sophomore on the football team. He was married. He had a 90% GPA in his studies on animal husbandry. But Jack Trice was black. In fact, he was the first black athlete for Iowa State, and he was good. So the coaches and the students, they all rallied around him after their first game, and he was going to start in the second game. In the first half, he broke his collarbone, but continued to play. In the, and then in the third quarter, Minnesota, the team they were playing against, ran a play with two lead blockers that was basically designed to take him out. Uh, he got trampled by a bunch of players. You've got to remember this is back when they were using leather helmets. Um, he was able, unable to leave the field on his own, so they took him off the field, sent him back to Iowa State uh, College, the hospital there, and two days later he died of internal bleeding. On the day, after, on the day of his funeral, some of his friends found a note in his jacket pocket that he had written on the stationery from the hotel there in Minnesota just before the game. And that letter read this. To whom it may concern, <clears throat> my thoughts just before the first real college game of my life. The honor of my race and my family and myself is at stake. Everyone is expecting me to do big things. I will, he underlined. My whole body and soul are to be thrown recklessly about the field. Every time the ball is snapped, I will, he underlined again, be trying to do more than my part. Now you might think to yourself, that man's a fool for giving his life for a football game. And yes, even, even though carrying uh, an oblong ball across a white line isn't very significant in itself, when we hear stories like that, it's hard not to think that's a man with incredible courage. 
There's just something about someone willing to give their life for anything that cries out conviction and courage. The book of Acts is written in a form of literature called narrative, meaning Luke, the author of Acts, is simply telling a story. But the thing about biblical narrative that is so unique is that embedded in that story is a lesson. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writers of the biblical narrative, they embedded theology and morals and and eternal truths into those stories. And our goal is to figure out what those truths are. But, but when we're looking for the truth that is embedded in a story like Acts chapter 21, we can't just put our finger to the wind and say, well, I think that's what it means. Because if that's how we figure out what a passage means, then it can, the Bible can mean anything to anyone, anywhere, at any time. So how do we do that? How do we know what, the truth, what truth the Holy Spirit was actually inspiring in the biblical authors like Luke to write? Well, he's given us clues. Literary clues that are like like a roadmap or like a connect the dots that reveal the truth the Holy Spirit intended for us to see in any given biblical story. And in the case of the story Luke tells in Acts chapter 21, I want you to see how the Holy Spirit lays out dots that, that when they're connected, reveal the eternal truth of courage and conviction. Now, the Holy Spirit could just tell us, be courageous and be convicted. In fact, he does that in other places in the Bible. That's, that's exactly how he puts it. But that's not how the Holy Spirit rolls, just to give us one little brief statement. The, the, the Holy Spirit gives us his truth in all different forms, in different settings, in different places, in different flavors. So we can see it from all sides, like a, like a jeweler holding a, a precious gem. We can turn it around and flip it over in our hands and see all the different facets of these truths that the Holy Spirit has given us. And, and he's done that with this idea of courage and conviction. If you'll remember the, the story about the 12 spies that Israel sent into Canaan to, to scout it out before they went and attacked. And when they got back, 10 of those spies said, no, we can't do it. It's too, they're too big. But Jacob and, Ka- or excuse me, um, my mind just went blank. <laughs> Thank you. Joshua and Caleb said, <laughs> I need to know this. <laughs> they, those two out of the 12 said, no biggie, God's with us, we can take them. Or in 1 Samuel 17, there's that story of that young man who, uh, rather than sitting on the sidelines with the rest of Israel and cowering, cowering with, a, with a handful of stones and a slingshot, he said, he's just a giant, God's going to beat him easy. You have, a, you have another story of three young men in Babylon who, rather than forsaking, worshiping their God for idols, uh, they decided to willingly just walk into a furnace after they were told to. Or there's that other story about that other young man in Babylon who um, spent the evening cuddling with lions because he refused to stop praying to God. So how is the Holy Spirit conveying that truth to us in Acts chapter 21? That's what I want you to see this morning. And again, the way I want you to see it is I want you to think about it as, as if Acts 21 is like a connect the dots on a map. And those dots, when they're all connected, when we connect all those, all those places and, and, and dots, they're going to reveal letters and words of a sentence. And that's what we're going to unpack this morning is just a sentence. And, and that sentence is this. The courage of conviction 
will always have an objective that cannot be diverted and it affects others. The courage of conviction will always have an objective that cannot be diverted and it affects others. That's what we're going to walk through this morning. So the, the first dots on our map in verses 1 through 3, the first pieces of this sentence, the courage of conviction always has an objective. Look at chapter 21 and verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, this is Paul and his companions with Luke and a couple other people. They are leaving the Ephesian elders behind. When they had set sail, Luke says, we came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Now, the right answer at this point is, Grant, I don't see any courage or conviction. All I see right now is a bunch of names of cities I can't pronounce. That's, that's pretty much what we see here. What Luke is saying here is implied. What Luke is describing by all these little stops, and you can see it in the language, he's describing through story Paul's determination. His purpose. Paul is now doing what he's been saying. What Luke is describing is Paul's voyage on, on like a small boat that's hugging the shore. It's too small to go out to open sea. So it's hugging the shore in and out of these little islands around the, the northern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And notice in verse 1, Luke says they went by a straight course to Kos. But then that boat docked. So Luke then tells us in verse 2 that they found a ship. And the language implies that they were looking for a ship. They, they wanted to find another ship to get going, and they made it to Phoenicia. And then, in Luke, uh, then Luke tells us in, in verse 3 that they passed the island of Cyprus, which means they found a much larger boat for the intentional purpose that it had the ability to, sh to sail straight through to uh, uh, Tyre because it was a much bigger boat. It could go on the open Mediterranean Sea, and we can actually see how big this boat was about halfway through verse four, Luke's going to tell us that it took seven days to unload that cargo. The point Luke is making is that Paul had finally set his face toward Jerusalem. Like, like he had been saying he wanted to do for months. Flip back to, to 19 to chapter 19, verse 21. Remember Paul already said, he said now after, or Luke said now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And then look at verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 16. When, when Paul came back after that little trip, he went to Corinth and then he came back around. He came to Miletus. He says in verse 16, because Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So he didn't want to get stuck in Ephesus. He, he, he had the elders come to him in Miletus so he didn't get trapped there. And then in verse, chapter 20, verse 22, Paul tells the Ephesian elders, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem. I'm constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except for the Spirit tells me imprisonment and affliction await. So, so first Paul resolved to go to Jerusalem. Then he hastens to go to Jerusalem. And now he's constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. 
And Luke is now showing him doing this via a story. But why was Paul going to Jerusalem? Why was Paul so intent on going to Jerusalem? He wasn't from Jerusalem. And he certainly wasn't liked in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit told him his trip there wasn't going to be fun. If you remember last week, Paul made this trip around the Aegean Sea to these, to these churches. And he spent the winter in Corinth before he came back around. But listen to the instructions that Paul gave the Corinthians before he left on that trip. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul told them, he said, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So Paul told the, the Corinthians, I want you guys to start setting aside some funds for the saints so that when I get there, it's ready to go and I don't have to collect it. So, so then he starts on his trip around the sea on his way to Corinth. And while he's on his way there, after he's gone through a couple of other churches, he writes another letter to them. And he says this in the, in the next letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So he's passing through and picking up these funds from other churches. And he wants Corinthians to know that it's been going really well. He said, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And then later in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. He says, for I know your readiness of which I boast about to you, uh, to you about the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So Paul's talking about the Corinthian church's giving has actually caused some of the other churches to want to tag along. He says, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter. So Paul's sending some guys ahead. He says in verse four, otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So what Paul is saying is I've. Sorry. He's saying, I have been bragging to the other churches about how much you guys have raised, and now I'm going to be there soon. So how about let's not put our foot in our mouths, and you guys have it put together. Who's this gift for, though? What saints is Paul talking about ministering to with this gift? While Paul was in Corinth that winter, he wrote a letter to the Romans. And in that letter, he said this. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Verse 25, he says, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. So this aid is for the saints in Jerusalem. He says, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their blessing, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what was collected, he says, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So here's the point. 
what Paul was doing on his little trip around the Aegean Sea was taking up this collection for the, for the impoverished saints that lived in Jerusalem. Why? Why did he do that? What he told the Romans was that since the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings that came through the Jews, that those Gentiles were pleased to then be a spiritual blessing in return or a material blessing in return to them. So when I say the courage of conviction always has a purpose, why was it that Paul was so determined to get this donation to the saints in Jerusalem? And I want you to hear this. Paul's purpose, his conviction was to do anything that he could to unite the church. You see, the church in Jerusalem it was still struggling with accepting Gentile Christians. We'll see this in depth next week, but just glance down at, at, at verse uh, 20, the second half of verse 20 in chapter 21. Paul is talking to James, and you'll see here that James says to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come, meaning they're going to be nervous that you're here because they hear that you're telling Gentiles to forget everything that we grew up with. But Paul wanted to bring this donation to the suffering Christians in Jerusalem to say, look, guys, the Gentile Christians love you. They're part of the household of God. Pa Paul wanted what he said to the Galatians and the Ephesians to come true for the Jewish Christians, that, that there is therefore now no, neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor, nor male nor female, but, but that the Gentiles have now been brought close to the household of God. He wanted that to happen, and he was hoping that this gift that he had collected from all the Gentile churches would be like an olive branch to the Jewish church. And as you start to see Paul's objective emerge, his desire to unite the church through this gift, it's hard to think of many other people in the Bible more devoted than him. I mean, it wears me out just reading about how he lived. We'll see in a minute, verse 13, that Paul will say, I'm ready to die to get this money to the church in Jerusalem. Now, I began to think about this in terms of my own life this week. I thought about the depth of Paul's conviction. And I wondered why that level of conviction, it seems to be so often just out of grasp for me. We desperately want to have that kind of conviction. We want to have that kind of courage. But for some reason, it just seems to be beyond us. We just can't quite lay hold of it. You ever feel that way? Like, like you want to be like this. You want to have this depth of purpose to, to be this courageous for something important. But you just can't seem to lay hold of this mindset that Paul has. Now watch this, listen to this. This is, this is where the Holy Spirit finally revealed in these dots what Paul's courage came from. The reason that we have such a difficult time duplicating 
the courage of conviction of someone like Paul is often because we don't have an objective. In other words, the objective, the purpose, the goal is always the basis for the courage. You can't be courageously convicted about something when you don't have a clear objective to be courageously convicted about. Meaning, I think part of the reason that we feel so detached from this kind of courage is because we don't live the kind of object-oriented life that Paul did. Think about it. If right now I was to ask each of you, what is your greatest objective right now? What would your answer be? Because I think for most of you, if you're like me, your answer would be, um, well, what was the question again? If I were to ask you right now, write on a piece of paper, and I'm not, this is rhetorical, but if I were to say right now, write down the top three objectives of your life, the top, the purposes of your life, what you're aiming for, what would you write down? Because A, if you have to think about it very long, you don't have one. Or B, if what you do write down very quickly is not based on the kingdom of God, then something isn't right. An objective always precedes the courage. I can't just say, Christians, be courageous. And we can't just run around, I'm courageous, I'm courageous. That's not how it works. About what are we courageous? I'm sure you've felt this way before because I know a common desire among American Christians is that someday we would have this opportunity to be courageous for something important. Like the story of the, the Russian soldiers who, who went into the church and told all the Christians, if you, if you don't want to get killed, leave now. Um, and so a few left, but then the soldiers stayed in worship because they, know, they knew those Christians were serious. We wish, we, we, we wish that someday we could have that, that uh, chance. Or like Cory Tin Boom protecting Jewish families in, in World War II. We wish we could have that chance someday. Here's the reality, though. We can never be courageous if we don't have an objective, if we don't have a purpose. So the truth of the matter is this, listen, what we're really hoping for is not the opportunity to be courageous, but we're hoping for God to give us an objective, a purpose. What we're really hoping for is not this opportunity to be courageous, but we're wanting God to give us a purpose, an objective. Because without that purpose or that objective, we can't be courageous. But how does God respond to us wanting to have that objective, wanting to have that purpose? When we say, God, please give me a purpose. How does he respond? I've already given you a purpose. I've given you a bunch of purposes. Right here. How are you going to magically be courageous about some purpose I haven't given you? When the purposes I've already given you, you're not being courageous about yet. If we would be convicted about something today, we could be courageous today. If, if, if we would be convicted about spreading the gospel today, we could be courageous today. We don't have to wait for some pie in the sky chance. If we would be courageous today, if we would be convicted today about serving or being humble or loving, we could be courageous today. 
an opportunity to be courageous. It's rarely just forced upon us. It's rarely just dropped in our lap. But that doesn't mean we can't be convicted about something and we can't be courageous about something. At any moment, if you think about our Savior, he didn't have to suffer anything that he did. At any moment, he could have just acquiesced and it would have been over. At any moment, he could have just pulled out his rights as a, as a rabbi or roused up the crowd to defend him or defended himself in front of the Sanhedrin or Pilate. And all of that suffering would have gone away. But he didn't. He chose to be courageous because he knew his objective. He knew his purpose. And nothing was going to distract him from that. Nothing was going to stand in his way for his purpose to be the sacrifice for all of us. To pay for our sins. He knew that's what he was going to do. Brothers and sisters, Luke is showing us in story form that the courage of conviction that so many Christians want to have always has an objective. So I ask you again, what's your objective? What's your purpose? Because God's given plenty of them for us to choose from in his word. If you're totally unsure, try one of Paul's. Like in Philippians 3 where he said he counted all things as loss. To know the Lord. To know the power of his resurrection. And to, and to, and to share in his suffering. Try that one. Make that your objective, your purpose, your singular purpose in life. And then courageously pursue it. Devote yourself to sharing the gospel with as many people as you can. Make that your objective and then pursue it courageously. Think about, make your objective looking for people who are, are, are hurting. Look for hurting eyes. And minister to them. Make that your objective. Invite someone to church. Love your spouse or submit to them. Guard your eyes. You may even have one now that you just haven't identified yet. But whatever the case may be, until we can identify an objective and a purpose, we can't follow in the footsteps of Paul or our Savior and really be courageous about it. That's the first point that Luke is showing us. The courage of conviction always has a purpose. And we have to identify that purpose before we can be courageous about something. And I promise the next two will be shorter. Because when you can identify that objective, the next set of dots that Luke shows us in this story is that the courage of conviction cannot be diverted. The courage of conviction, it cannot be diverted. You can always tell how convicted someone is by how fast you can get them off track. Look at verse 4 in Acts 21. And having sought out the disciples, this is entire. We stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When, your days, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we finished, when we finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at... at at Ptolemy, and we had greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He means the seven deacons that were chosen back in Acts 6. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, 
Thus the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So in verse four, Paul is, is at Tyre. And notice there when he gets to um, when, when he's at Tyre, there's there's these uh, for seven days. The, the Christians there told him not to go to Jerusalem. Then they followed him to the port and prayed with him. You got to know that was probably some pretty passive aggressive prayers there, right? Like, dear Jesus, we know you're sovereign and omnipotent, so please convict Paul of his error and change his course. You know, that had to happen. But Paul continues a little further south to Caesarea. And again, the believers there urge him not to go to Jerusalem. In fact, this prophet named Agabus shows up and takes off Paul's belt. Think of more like a sash, like a long piece of cloth. And Agabus tied himself up and said, this is how the man who owns this belt is going to be treated in Jerusalem. It's a very Old Testament way of prophesying where you act out what you're saying. But notice that Paul doesn't deny their concerns. He doesn't say they're wrong. Even though Luke tells us that they're speaking to him by the spirit. So here's, here's what's important to understand. The spirit was testifying to these people that Paul would suffer. They got that part right. But it was their interpretation of those facts they got wrong. The spirit wasn't telling them that Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem. The spirit was telling them he was going to suffer in Jerusalem. Therefore, they concluded he shouldn't go to Jerusalem. But Paul could not be diverted. As we've already seen three times, he's not going to be deterred from going to Jerusalem. He's constrained. He's resolved to go to Jerusalem. Now, here's what I want you to see, because I'm sure it's what the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write. In Philippians chapter three, as I've already said, Paul said, I have suffered the loss of all things for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He said that I may gain him, that I, may, that I might know the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul desperately wanted to know Christ so deeply. And what Luke wants us to see is the depth to which Paul lived this out. How close Paul's ministry was to Christ. If you know the Gospels, you know that leading up to Palm Sunday, three times Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Jesus said that three times. And now we have Paul saying the same thing three times. And then, just like in the Gospels, Jesus was told by the people, like Peter especially, Oh no, Jesus, you can't go to Jerusalem and suffer. You won't die. And Paul is told not to go to Jerusalem and suffer. And then just like in the Gospels, in the garden, when Jesus prays, he's, he says, is there another way, Father? Take this cup from me. And how did that prayer end? Jesus said, your will be done. And what is the realization of the Christians in verse 14? And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. There's no doubt in my mind that we are supposed to see this parallel. 
Now, Paul's not redeeming people like Christ did. He's not another Jesus. But he is so devoted to walking in the footsteps of his Savior that even his life is beginning to conform to Jesus's. His absolute inability to be diverted is beginning to mimic Christ's. He's so close to his Savior, suffering wouldn't stand in his way. Imprisonment wouldn't stand in his way. He's even willing to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. You know those times when you leave the house in the winter in your nice clothes and you get stuck somewhere where you got to walk through snow and then you do that thing where you look kind of like a dancing caribou where you like you're trying to keep both your feet off the ground at the same time to keep the snow out of your shoes and so you you jump through the snow like that. But what do you do if someone's already been where you're going? If there's already somebody who's who's made a path. It, it doesn't really matter how they made that path. If you got to get down on all fours and crawl to match their tracks, or if you have to leap because they're really, really tall, I don't know. You, you do whatever you can to put your footsteps into their footsteps. Paul is showing us what it looks like to walk in the footsteps of our Savior. Our Savior has already made a path through ridicule, through suffering, and even death on our behalf. He's left us footsteps to walk in. Jesus Christ has already trudged a path through sin to devotion and courage. Not so that we can make a path just like him. We can't do that. But so that we can follow in the footsteps that he has already made. Like Paul is doing. The writer of Hebrews would later say to us in Hebrews chapter 12. He would say, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How are we supposed to do that? By looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. In verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? Why should we consider Jesus? So that we too may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus has left footprints through life, through sin, through suffering for us to follow in. And we can look at him and how he did it. Earlier in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews said, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. But he has been tempted in every single way. And is still left a devoted track for us to follow. Footprints for us to follow through the snow. Cedar Springs Church. That we would be willing just to take a few steps. In the path our Savior has made for us. That we would be willing to even just be uncomfortable. For the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we would be willing to forsake our family for the name of Jesus Christ. That we would be willing to forsake promotions or weekends or education for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that we would not be diverted from that by anything as we followed in his footsteps. That we too would count all things as loss to know him and to share in his resurrection and his sufferings. 
Can we? Right? Right here this morning, together, can we make that our objective? Can we determine right now in our minds that the next time that our enemy tries to divert us from our purpose by the simple things of this life, the trinkets, the distractions even, that when our enemy tries to do that, we will look to the footsteps of our Savior for the strength to not be diverted. Can we do that? Just that. Because look what will happen when we do this. The courage of conviction to an objective that cannot be diverted affects others. Verse 14. And since he, that's Paul, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. I love this part. If we're not careful, it's one of those things we can read right past. Here were all these people saying, don't go, don't go. You're going to suffer. And what happened? They all went with him to Jerusalem. That kind of, of courage is contagious. Instead of weeping and cautioning and begging Paul, instead of that affecting Paul, Paul affected them. Paul was hated. He was going to be imprisoned. He was going to be persecuted. He was a marked man in Jerusalem. And now they're willing to be identified with him. Because they saw Paul's courage and they are now willing to pay that price. In China in the late 1800s, tensions were, were reaching a boiling point between the, the Chinese that were loyal to the emperor and then the Chinese missionaries and Christians. Because there was a drought that year that, that had messed up, uh, had created a famine and the, and the Chinese loyal to the emperor had blamed all that on the Christians. And so in about 1900 started what's called the Boxer Rebellion. Because these Chinese that were loyal to the emperor had studied martial arts, which at that time was called Chinese boxing. So it's called the Boxer Rebellion, where these, these uh, uh, loyalists started attacking Christians. At one point, these boxers captured a mission where there was about 100 youth living. And they locked all the gates and they laid a cross, cross down in the dirt at one gate and they told, lined up all the kids and they said, and, and, and anybody who's willing to walk across to trample this cross, you'll live. If you don't, you're shot. And so terrified, naturally, the first seven kids walked across the cross and, and lived until the seventh, this young girl, knelt down by the cross prayed, stood up, and carefully walked around the cross. Now listen, after this young lady did that, every single one of the 92 other students followed her to the firing squad. Courage is contagious. Remember that letter that Jack Trice wrote before his first game? against Minneapolis. You may think it's silly that so much we'd be made over something like a football game. But guess what the motto of the Iowa State University football team is nearly 100 years later? I will. Courage is contagious. The courage of conviction will always have an objective that cannot be diverted and it will affect others. So my question is, who will it be? Who will it be? 
in this room who will be the one who will affect the rest of us? Who in this room will be the one that inspires the rest of us to follow in the footsteps of our Savior? Who in this room will be the first to display the courage that we're reading about now to count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing and following and sharing in not just the resurrection, but in the suffering of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Who will be the first? And then my next question is, who will be next? Who will come after them to go further in counting our Savior as more precious than what this world has to offer? And then my next question is, who will be next? Who will be the next to display the courage of conviction that beckons those around them like us, beckons us to see and taste that the Lord is good? That's what Luke is showing us in this story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these kinds of stories that you give us to to show us the, the courage of, of men. I thank you for how you've, you've shown us that these men didn't do this because they were stronger or smarter or better. The courage that, that every single one of these people had was because you were with them. Their courage was that you had led the way and it was you that they looked to for strength and Father, I pray right now that you would do that in our hearts, that you would grow in us an understanding that it is not our ability or our strength or our, our, our smarts, our wisdom that, that would allow us to be courageous, but simply that, that we would look to you to follow in your footsteps, to devote ourselves to your word and the things that you have called us to. And Father, I look forward so much to the day when, when that courage becomes an infection in this church and it spreads. I thank you, Lord, that you have done this for us, that you don't ask us to do something you haven't already done, that you've given us your spirit. And I know you will do this.